Good evening. As I walked up here, I wanted to say good morning, and but it's not Sunday morning. It's Wednesday night. It's been a long day. Good morning. Tonight's lesson is a heavy one, but that's okay because we need it. So how about we strap in and let's see what we can do with this time that God has given us. So the year is 1921. David and Sevilla fled, went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. <clears throat> they met up with the Ericsons, another young Scandinavian couple, and together felt led of the Lord to take the gospel to a remote village called Indolera. The chief of the village would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. So the two couples opted to build their own mud huts half a mile up the slope. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. Their only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Svia Flood, a tiny woman of only four feet, eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus, and she was successful. Meanwhile, malaria struck one member of the little missionary band after another, and eventually the Ericsons returned and left uh, for this central mission statement station, leaving David and Sevilla Flood to carry on alone. Then Sevilla found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born whom they named Ina, and the delivery was exhausting. Zvia Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria, so the birthing process was a heavy blow to her stamina, and she died only 17 days after Ina was born. And something snapped inside David Flood in that moment. He dug a crude grave and buried his 27-year-old wife and went back down the mountain with his children to the mission station. Giving baby Ina to the Ericsons, he, he snarled, I am going back to Sweden. I have lost my wife and I cannot take care of this baby. God has destroyed my life. God, David re rejected not only his calling, but God himself. Eight months later, both of the Ericsons became mysteriously ill and died within days of each other. Baby Ina was turned over to an American missionary family who changed her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually took her back the United States where they switched from their missionary work to pastoral ministry. Aggie grew up in South Dakota and attended Bible College in Minneapolis where she met and married David Dewey Hurst. Years passed and the Hurst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter and then a son and in time her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. Heritage there. One day she found a Swedish religious magazine in their mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she could not read the words, but as she turned the pages, a photo suddenly stopped her cold. There, in a primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross was the name Sevilla Flood. Aggie got in her car and drove straight to a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. The teacher shared a summary of the story. It is about missionaries who went to Indolera, Africa long ago. The baby was born, the young mother died, and one little African boy was led to Jesus before that. 
After the whites had all left, the boy, all grown up, finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. He had gradually won all his students to Christ, and in turn, those children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief eventually became a follower of Jesus. And today, there are 600 believers in that village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Zavia Flood. Aggie, as you can imagine, was elated. And soon after, Aggie sought out her birth father, father in Sweden. David Flood was an old man now, remarried and father of four children, but he generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke and still bitter. He had only one rule for his family, never, ever mention the name of God. After an emotional reunion with her half-siblings, Aggie approached her father's apartment, having been warned of his rage towards God. She opened the door, liquor bottles were strewn everywhere, and she slowly approached her 73-year-old father lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry, Ina, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she said, gently taking him into her arms. God took care of me. Her father stiffened and his tears stopped. God forgot about all of us, he said, turning back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, you did not go to Africa in vain. Mama did not die in vain. The little boy that you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus. <clears throat> and the one seed that you planted in his heart kept growing and growing. And today there are 600 people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you and he has never hated you or abandoned us. The old father turned back to look to, into his daughter's eyes and his body relaxed. He slowly began to talk, and by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God that he had resented for so many years. And a few weeks after Aggie and her husband returned to America, David Flood died. A few years later, Aggie and her husband were attending an evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given from Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the National Church, representing what was now some 110,000 baptized believers spoke eloquently of the gospel's spread in his nation. Aggie could not help but ask him afterward if he had ever heard of her parents, David and Sevilla Flood. Why, yes, madam, he said. As a boy, I sold your parents chickens and eggs before you were born, and Sevilla Flood led me to Jesus Christ. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by us all. And he insisted that Aggie and her husband come to visit in Indolera. And when they arrived, they were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. The pastor, the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's tomb with a white cross bearing her name. And she knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks to God. And later that day in the church, the boy now turned pastor red. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. John chapter 12, verse 24. My wife shared this story with me about a week ago. Or actually, she shared the story on Facebook about a week ago. And then because I never get on Facebook, she read it to me one night as we were getting ready for bed. And as I listened to this story, I couldn't help but think about the sovereignty of God. And 
that was convenient because that's what tonight's lesson is about. I'm sure you're all wondering by now, well, what what does this story have to do or what does any of this have to do with the sovereignty of God? In fact, I thought that this study was on a book called The War of Words. What does God's sovereignty have to do with the way I talk with people? Well, as we find out, as we read this book, it has everything to do with the way we talk to people. Paul Tripp tells us that if we want to live a life of godly communication, it must be rooted in a personal recognition of the sovereignty of God. Only when we submit to the rule of God, who has a perfect plan and is in complete control, will we begin to live and speak as he has purposed. But first, we need to understand what sovereignty, what the sovereignty of God is. And obviously, there's no way that we could possibly understand everything that there is to know about God's sovereignty. Not in our lifetime, certainly not in this next half hour. But we'll do our best with the time that we have. But first, let's ask ourselves, what is the definition of sovereignty? Well, the first known use of the word sovereignty was in the 14th century. And the word sovereign was derived from the old French word sovereign, spelled S-O-V-E-R-A-I-N, based on the Latin super or above. Ultimately, the English spelling was changed to S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N due to its association with reign, R-E-I-G-N. And Webster defines sovereignty as supreme power, unlimited power over a country, freedom from external control. The idea is unchallenged, unmatched, undeniable power and control over a territory or organized group of people. It is supreme, unequivocal authority. We need that kind of authority in our lives, don't we? The authority in our lives determines how we live our lives. Think about it. Imagine what our world would be like if there was no ultimate authority. Just think about the parent-child relationship. Last time when I taught on chapter 2 of this book, I posed the question, what if we allowed children to become the authority in the home? Well, let me rephrase that question tonight and ask, what if parents failed to exercise the God-demanded authority over their children? I can tell you what it will be like in my house. My kids would never brush their teeth. They would never bathe. They would never fold their clothes. They would never clean their room. They would always eat junk, and they would destroy everything and probably kill each other because they fight over everything. I mean, I can barely imagine a more chaotic scene in my own personal life. But that's not what God commands us as parents to do, now is it? No, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 says, commands parents to train up a child in the way he should go, and Ephesians 6.1 commands children to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And there are plenty of other passages in Scripture that say the same thing. Well, what about the the boss-employee relationship? Earlier this week, I got a call from my boss's boss's boss. That's high up there. And he was asking if I had time to talk about an email that I had spent half the morning compiling some information for him to give to his boss. Well, how well would it go for me if I said, sorry, I'm, I'm really busy with my Instagram right now. I don't have time to take your call. What if I just never put the email together, never sent it to him? What if I called in sick all the time when I really wasn't sick? 
and just was generally lazy and never accomplished what was expected of me. Well, I can tell you what would happen. I wouldn't have a job. That's how well that would go for me. The Bible has a lot to say about laziness. And Paul calls both the Ephesians and Colossians to be obedient to their masters when in a master-bondservant relationship. And if you've never um, heard of this or, or thought much about it, what it basically is, is it's, it's the closest thing from that culture and that time to, to match what we have in the boss-employee relationship in our culture today. Well, what about our government? <clears throat> what about our military and our law enforcement? What would life be like if nobody obeyed the laws governing our land? What if we didn't have the military to protect our borders? And what if we didn't have police to enforce those laws? Paul says to the Romans, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Let every soul be subject to his government. That's a pretty controversial command in our day and age, don't you think? I mean, as I, as I thought about that, I, I, I couldn't help but think about the days and, and months leading up or leading, coming after both the 2016 and 2020 elections and seeing uh, social media posts on both sides uh, of, of that screaming, not my president. Yet, <clears throat> Paul and God through Paul commands everyone, every soul to be subject to your president. The point is, is that without sovereignty in our lives, without sovereignty in the world, without respect for authority, life itself would die in utter chaos. In a world without authority when without sovereignty is unlivable. But who was it that created and established sovereignty? It was God. God, in his infinite wisdom, established his sovereignty into the fabric of every aspect of creation and placed Jesus Christ, his son, at his right hand as the sovereign ruler over all things. Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to be the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And David says in Psalms 103:19 that the Lord has established his thrones in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And he says again in chapter, or First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 and 12, that yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. The way my mom would put it is that there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If we want to live and speak as God intended, we must submit to his rule and recognize his sovereignty. 
and to help us in our endeavor to understand the sovereignty of God, Paul Tripp's book, The War of Words, identifies seven categories about the sovereignty of God. Now, I realize that I'm about 10, 15 minutes into my 30 to 40 minute window, so there's not time to break down all seven individually, so I've grouped them together. And the first one is that the sovereignty of God is his unchallenged rule of the universe. The sovereignty of God is his unchallenged rule of the universe. Now here is how Paul Tripp describes this. God is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He has no peer. He, is not only, he not only is Lord over every ruler on earth, but he is also Lord of the heavens. The entire universe operates according to his good pleasure. No one has taught God and no one gives him advice. No one can legitimately question him and no one can stand in the way of his will. He sits on the throne of the universe, and he alone rules. As I tried to understand what all of this means in my, in my mind, uh, there are a few things that I thought about that might uh, provide helpful illustrations. So my parents live about as far out in the country as you can get on paved road, and their house on a cold winter's night is one of the few places that I have ever been where the night sky is so clear that you can literally see the boundaries of the Milky Way as it stretches from one side of the sky to the other. And as a boy, I used to have a telescope, and I would spend hours outside their house at night exploring the skies as if I was a cadet on the USS Enterprise. I hope somebody gets that reference. When late one night, I found Jupiter. And I could see everything about that planet through my telescope. I could see its stormy stripes stretching across its atmosphere. I could see that high pressure region 22 degrees south of its equator known as the Great Red Spot which produces wind speeds of up to 432 kilometers an hour. And I could see its moons racing around the planet. And I think the, the point of this that we need to understand is that God is sovereign over Jupiter, its moons, and its Great Red Spot. Well, let's take it a little further. Somewhere near the center of the Milky Way, roughly 9,500 light years from Earth, within the constellation Scutum, I might be pronouncing some of this wrong, lies a hypergiant star known as the UI Scuddy. A hypergiant is a rare star that's larger than the supergiants and giants, and this particular hypergiant star has a radius around 1,700 times larger than the radius of our own sun. And to help you try to grasp that, the radius of the Earth is 3,958.8 miles. And more than a million Earths can fit inside our sun, and almost 5 billion suns can fit inside this UI Scuddy star. This is the largest star currently known to man. And God's sovereignty rules over the UY Scuddy. Now, I hope that most of us know what a light year is, but if not, or if you just never really thought about it, it is the distance that light travels in one Earth year, which is roughly six trillion miles. And I had to look that up. Six trillion is, is a six with 12 zeros behind it. And if we were to hop in a spaceship and travel about 13,000 of those light years from Earth, we would find a gas giant planet called 
the OGLE 2014 BLG0124L. It's not a very creative name. I did not come up with it. But it is the most distant planet known to mankind. And God sovereignly rules over the OGL, OGLE 2014 BLG 0124L. Now, if that doesn't help us grasp the sovereignty of God and just how big it is, let's listen to an abbreviated version of what God has to say to Job when Job demands a full explanation from God for the hardship in his life. This is my favorite part of that book, by the way. He says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. I I take this as license to address my kids in the same way whenever they question me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And that all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and thick garments its, or thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set barns and doors. And when I said, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Tell me if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place that you may take it to its territory that you may know the paths to its home? Can you bind the cluster of Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the Maseroth in its season or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Or can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Surely we get the idea by now. That we in our infinitesimal wisdom question God and God says that I am who I am. I am the sovereign ruler of all things that are, that ever were, and ever will be. Nothing is without my say-so. I speak, and the universe obeys. Now, this means something for us. And what it means, as Paul Tripp explains, is that we will never be in a situation, location, or relationship in which God is not ruling. The moments of life are his moments. We should not claim them as our own. Every word we speak should acknowledge his control and be spoken in a way that pleases the one who is ruling the very moment in which we are speaking. This also means that there is grace. We cannot miss this. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have access to the power to speak in a way that acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Because let's be honest, on our own, we're doomed, right? I mean, there is no way that we can stand alone before a God of such awesome power. We would be crushed. But Christ stands before us and gives us the power to speak in a way that pleases God. 
All we have to do is tap into that power. All we have to do to tap into that power is ask ourselves, mind you, before we speak, not after, is what I'm about to say a reflection of the image of Christ or a reflection of the image of the serpent? And then allow Jesus to speak through us. We also see that the sovereignty of God is his rule over all things for the church and the specific details of our lives. The sovereignty of God is his rule over all things for the church and the specific details of our lives. Paul Tripp asserts that God sovereignly rules over all things for the purpose of raising up a people for his own possession. A people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light to live for eternity for his glory. He rules for the sake of his people, for us. He controls the universe so that his redemptive purposes for us and his redemptive promises to us will be fulfilled. He rules so that the justification, sanctification, and glorification that he promises us are guaranteed. As I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about the story of Moses and the Israelites in the Exodus uh, from Egypt. And they get to the point in their story where it's time to build the tabernacle. And thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave it up to them, to, the, to themselves, to figure out how to do it. There on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses intricately specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Down to the tiniest of minute details. I don't, we don't have the time to read through all of that because it goes on for chapters. But um, we're... We're talking about details like the exact number, color, and size of the curtains, how they are to be hung, where they are to be hung, how they are to be fastened, what the altars and the tables are to be made of, the type of wood for the tabernacle, and how much wood needs to be on each side, the material that the lampstands, bowls, and other table fixtures are to be made of, and what they should look like, and it goes on and on and on in mind-boggling detail. And then we get to the point in chapter 40 of Exodus, where the time has come to erect the tabernacle. And it says that Moses did so according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. And as I read through that chapter, I was struck by how often I saw the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now Moses in this chapter, he, he, he wrote the book of Exodus, and in this chapter he's describing what it was like uh, to assemble the tabernacle for the first time. And as the people would complete each section, he would say, and they did so as the Lord commanded Moses. He does this seven times. They did such and such as the Lord commanded Moses. They did this over here as the Lord commanded Moses. They did that over there as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses. And I just couldn't help but see how clearly the sovereignty of God over his people could be seen. I mean, he, he left nothing uh, untouched. He will, ruled over the entire process. But again, there's grace throughout this story. Because what, did, what sin had the people just committed prior to this at the foot of Mount Sinai? It was the golden calf. Moses had been gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and as God was giving him his law, 
The people, thinking that they were abandoned, convinced Aaron and his brother to build a golden calf that they could worship and give honor and praise for their miraculous exit from Egypt. As we would read and, and see late, further on, that does not sit well with God. And throughout the rest of the story of the Israelites, we see how time after time after time and again, when things get hard, they whine and they complain. Yet even after all of this, God still sovereignly guides the people through the process of building and erecting the tabernacle. Why is this important? Well, it's because of the purpose of the tabernacle. The Hebrew word for tabernacle implies to dwell or to live in. It was the place where God could literally be present among his people. It was the dwelling place of God. And you see, ever since creation, it has been God's purpose and his desire to be amongst his people and to have a close relationship with them. That is why he had Moses build the tabernacle in the days of the Exodus, and it is why he... Jesus Christ came in the form of a man. Jesus' Hebrew name, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. And so just as God was with the Israelites in the tabernacle, providing a way to pay for their sins, because that's where they took their sacrifices, God is also with us in Jesus Christ, providing a way to pay for our sins through Jesus Christ, because he is the sacrifice. And what we see from all of this is that, as Paul Tripp says, God is active in every moment of our lives, and he brings all things into our lives for our redemptive good. God's rule, he goes on to say, is not distant and impersonal. Yes, he rules over the waves and the mountains. Yes, he rules over the largest stars and extends to his rule to the farthest planets, but we cannot forget that God sovereignly rules over all creation, and that includes us. Paul goes on to say that his rule actually includes the details of the lives of every human being who ever lived. And he is so glorious in his sovereignty that he directs the specific details in every human life at the same time. He does this so that we can reach out to him and find him and rest in his rule. And God, is, God has us just where we need to be so that his purposes for us and his promises to us may come to pass. Now that purpose and that promise is that we might be saved through grace, conform to the image of his son, and bring honor, glory, and praise to his name forever and ever. And so we finally see that the sovereignty of God is his rule over our salvation, sanctification, and all things for his glory. Let's listen to a few more statements that Paul Tripp makes in chapter 5 of his book regarding salvation. He says that true worship begins as we grasp the sovereign grace of God. Our salvation exists on the rock of his will. Every aspect of our salvation depends on him. God's purpose and his sovereignty over our salvation is twofold. First, God's sovereign grace undermines all human pride and thoughts of self-sufficiency as we face our complete dependence on him. And if there is any spiritual life, faith, goodness, love, hope, grace, character, wisdom, and God-honoring fruit in our lives, it is because of God's grace. We are what we are because of him. And second, God's goal is that the pride we would otherwise have in ourselves be given over to praising him 
as Paul says in First Corinthians, Paul the Apostle says in First Corinthians one thirty one, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. These are all statements that I think I can generally agree with. Only when I really fathom God's grace do I really worship him with a grateful heart. Jesus Christ says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is true. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Without him, there is no salvation. The chasm that is between us and God is too great for us to cross on our own. We need Jesus. We totally depend on him to be the bridge to the narrow gate. And when we get through that narrow gate, we have no one to praise but Christ himself. There is no recognition that belongs to us. Now, if you've been reading through this book, and I hope that you have been, you may have come across some other statements in this chapter that may cause some concern. Statements like, the choice of who comes to understand truth and who will embrace falsehood belongs to God and God alone. I spent some time thinking about that and praying about that. And what I came to was that, frankly, it's okay for Paul to include this in his book. It is his book, and he is writing about his understanding of what election is. The Apostle Paul does talk about election in his letters to the church. It's in the Bible. Now, is my understanding the same as Paul Tripp's of election? No, it's not. Are we at River City Baptist Church going to teach it the same way? No, we are not. But here's the deal. In large part, the words of God and the oracles of God are a mystery and impossible to understand, and it is intended to be that way. This is part of what the Apostle Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What this means is that as we study scripture, there will be some areas that are difficult to grasp and difficult to understand. Election is one of them. And you know what? It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay. We're not meant to understand the ways of our sovereign God. Or the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? As the Apostle Paul exclaims in Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 35. And to quote our own Pastor Sam's, when you come across areas of scripture that are difficult to understand, the best course is to lean in on the areas of scripture that are clearly understood. So let me lay down some areas of scripture on the subject of salvation that are clearly understood. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, John 3:16. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1, 12 through 13. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should have, should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. And it shall come to pass that whoever 
calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.21 For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.3-4 Notice the language of these key words. The world, whoever believes, as many as received him, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. Whoever calls, God's desires all men to be saved. This is not exclusive language, but it is very inclusive. God's desire, Christ's desire, is for all mankind to be saved, that none should perish. Now, does that mean that all mankind will be saved? No. Not at all. There is only one way to redemption, and that is through Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the bridge to the gate of heaven, but the gate is narrow. As he says in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go, by, who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. It is not easy to follow Jesus. That is why so few do. We are born into a sinful world and born with a sinful nature. And are hardwired from the get-go to rebel against God. And to revel in our lusts and our passions and our desires and our selfish wants. To follow Jesus means to leave all, that, all of that behind and most, whether they say it or not, would rather burn in hell. Even if we do decide to follow Jesus, the road ahead is hard and difficult and rocky and uncomfortable. The circumstances of life often leave us wondering or even believing that God has forgotten us. And that's certainly what David Flood believed when his wife, Sevilla, died after giving birth to a child while on mission to bring the gospel to a lost and condemned African village. These are two things that you would think otherwise would bring glory and joy to the name of the Lord. But God is sovereign even over these challenging circumstances and relationships. And scripture shows us time after time that God uses these circumstances as the principal means by which to transform us into the likeness of his son, as Paul Tripp goes on and continues, rather than telling us that God has forgotten us, our circumstances shout to us that he has remembered us and will not leave us until his work is complete. So hardship is a fact of life. It is promised in scripture. But God uses it for our sanctification, that's the point. Let me get personal with you for a moment. I cannot, in my feeble mind, comprehend how God in his infinite and sovereign wisdom would withhold the gift of childbearing from a young couple who truly love each other, while at the same time blessing the womb that brings forth two boys addicted to cocaine from birth. But nonetheless, God sovereignly brought me my wife and our two full of life sons together and made us a family and while that is as heartwarming as it sounds it is also without a doubt the hardest path I have ever walked 
But as I look back on where I've been, I can see in the rearview mirror of life the dark areas of my heart that needed Jesus and were exposed under the light of the friction of the relationships in my life. And he has slowly cut away those rough edges and carved me more, I hope and pray, into, the li- into his likeness. And our story is not done, and neither is yours. However, as I think about what Christ has done in my life and in my children's life and in my wife's life, and as I think about the do- story of David and Sevilla and Ina Flood, and that young African boy from Indolera, and the 600 village believers that eventually grew to be 110,000 national followers of Christ, I cannot help but dream with anticipation about what Christ will do next, all to the glory of God. I mean, this is, as Paul Tripp finishes, the bottom line of everything Scripture says about the sovereignty of God. He does what he does for his own glory. History is his story. Every moment belongs to him. We are his possessions. All our gifts, graces, and abilities belong to him. It is all from him, all for him, all, and as the Apostle Paul says three times in Ephesians 1, all for the praise of his glory. So let every word we speak bring God the glory and bring redemptive good into the lives of the people that God has placed around us. Let's pray. Dear God, we love you, and we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for bringing us uh, together. You have sovereignly worked in each and every one of our lives to bring us to this room tonight. And uh, you continue to sovereignly work in each of our lives to transform us more into your likeness. And uh, I pray that your work will never stop. That you will not stop until you have achieved uh, what you set out to do. And uh, I pray that as we uh, live together and love together and work together that we will remember your sovereign rule over every moment of our lives and that we will speak uh, in a way that glorifies you and builds each other up. We love you. It's in your name. Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.